take a look at, uh, obviously, today is Father's Day. So we're going to take a look at fathers today as described in Mark chapter 9. But before we do, we want to say this morning, thanks, Dad. So all the dads that are here, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to say thank you to the fathers, so stand with me if you would. Well, hey, give them a second. They're not all standing. They're a little slow. All right, all the dads standing? All right, now let's give them a round of applause. There you go. Thank you, dads. Are those some of them in the choir still standing, coming down? Thank you for that. Please be seated. And uh, now you can relax a little bit. We won't make you stand until the end of the service when it comes time for the invitation and make you walk down front and uh, throw money at my feet. That's a joke. If you've not been here uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had someone who walked down the aisle uh, during the middle of my message and took out five $20 bills and threw them at my feet and walked out. It was uh, quite a, an impressive thing. I did not get to keep the $100, though. And they put it in the offering plate. I don't think that's fair, but anyway, we'll work on that. But uh, I want to say thanks to all the dads, because I am a dad. And today I have heard from my children. I heard from my oldest son. He, he tweeted, Happy Father's Day. Anybody know what a tweet is? You know, that counts today. I got tweeted, thanks to uh, for, for my oldest son. And uh, I, I got uh, um, messaged a text message from my son about Father's Day, and he said thanks. And on my daughter said, uh, Happy Father's Day on Facebook. So I've heard from all three of my sons via, uh, you know, those, those venues that young adults have a way of communicating today. And I don't take it personally. I think that's a, a cool thing. So I'm, I'm very appreciative. That, that means that there have been a lot of people that have seen the fact that they actually appreciate me, and I'm thankful for that. And today is Father's Day, and I'm going to treat my wife just like I treated her on Mother's Day. We went out and we bought rice at Dillon's, and that was about all we had on that day. Uh, we were in a hurry and had a lot of things going on. But, uh, you know, since I'm treating myself, I think I'll take myself out to a nice restaurant. What do you think? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I need marriage counseling after this is over. But anyway, uh, and I don't want you to take a note at, at, the, uh, at the board up here for just a minute on, and the slide. It not only says, thanks, Dad, but hand me the next slide, if you would. There's, a, there's a little inscription in there. It said, I want, us, I want us to take the lead in the spiritual battle for our children. And notice it said, thanks, Dad, for taking the, the lead in the spiritual battle for our children. There is a spiritual battle right now going on for the hearts, minds, and the souls of our children more than at any other time in the history of the world. With child pornography, with um, children being used as sex slaves and being sold on the market, with the battle right now with the Boy Scouts and somehow saying that boys who are really too young, who haven't even experienced puberty yet, know that they are homosexuals. Uh, there is an attack on the children today more than any other time in the history of not just the world, but I believe also the church. And we need more than ever, not just godly dads, not just moral fathers, but we need spiritual warriors who will seize the opportunity and put on the weaponry that is necessary in order to engage the enemy so that we can assume the role and the responsibility that we have as the spiritual leaders of not just our wives, but also our children. We as fathers are commanded by God to take the role and the leadership of the spiritual condition of our children. 
And I think one of the main reasons why the enemy is having a heyday is because dads across the nation and in churches today, we are not seizing the opportunity that God has called us and ordained us as the spiritual leaders of our family and our children. We have a responsibility to take the lead in the spiritual battle for our kids because the enemy, Satan, is a roaring lion and he is seeking to devour, to kill, and to destroy anyone he possibly can and he is targeting today your children and your grandchildren more than in any other time. They are the targets of spiritual warfare. And I want us to take a look at Mark chapter 9, and I want us to take a look at a father who here, who understands his role and responsibility, and this father had a desperate situation that drove him to Christ. And I want to take a look at Mark chapter 9, I want us to, first of all, begin with verse 14, to look at the desperation of this father. Notice the text in verse 14, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration for six days with three of the select disciples, James, John, and Simon Peter. They've been up there for six days. They've been having a glorious time. It's a mountaintop experience. Jesus and these three, along with Moses and Elijah, and Jesus' transfiguration and the Shekinah glory of God falling down on Christ and those three disciples while the other nine were below was a mountaintop experience beyond explanation, beyond reason. And they heard the voice of God. God audibly spoke to these three disciples up there on the mountaintop. They said, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And at the conclusion of those six days, they're coming down from the mountaintop experience. They are fired up spiritually. We've had children on retreat this weekend. We've had uh, teenagers who have retreated this weekend, and they're back, and most of them come back on a spiritual plateau and a spiritual high. We know what those are like. We've been in revival meetings. We've been in times where, where God has just lifted our spirits, and we have been in the very presence of God, and we, we come back on this mountaintop experience. These disciples, these three disciples are coming down, and they're talking with Jesus, and they're having a wonderful time, and all of a sudden, they discover something that maybe the disciples are not, not thinking they're going to discover, but Jesus, I'm not sure he's quite surprised. Or as they get down from the mountaintop, we discover that the disciples are in a debate or discussion with the scribes, a religious elite, over their inability to cast out a demon of a little boy. And notice what happens, and immediately all of the crowd, when they saw him, were gently amazed, and they ran up to him, and they greeted him. Notice the difference that Jesus makes in the crowd. There's, there's a lot of tension there's a lot of debating. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of, of anger that's going on. The disciples toward the scribes and the religious elite and them toward the disciples. And they're calling Jesus names and they're defaming him and, and degrading themselves. And, and there's a struggle going on. All of a sudden, Jesus comes in on the scene and everything changes. And the, the text indicates to us that everyone's spirits all of a sudden were lifted. The burden now is no longer what it was without Christ. That's what the presence of Jesus does. He lifts our spirits. He gives us hope. Why? Because Jesus is on the scene. He's present. And notice then what happens. And he, Jesus, asked them, what are you arguing about with them? He's asking the disciples, what, what's the argument? What's the debate? What's going on? Why is all this tension? Why all this friction? Why all this debating? Why all this anger? Why all of this tension going on? And someone from the crowd answered him. 
Now we know by the text as we're going to read, there's a father who has, has enough faith to believe that Jesus can heal his son of, of his condition of demon possession. And he seeks Christ out, but Christ is in the Mount of Transfiguration for six days, and he can't wait that long because he's that desperate. And so he settles for the disciples, and the disciples, in their attempt, they fail to cast the demon out of the boy. And in all the discussion, the debate, and the tension, the anger, and the hostility, and the words that are being exchanged, the father sort of, sort of backs off and sort of hides in the backdrop while all of that is going on. And now Jesus is coming. The spirits have been lifted of the crowd. Uh, the scribes, more than likely, are probably ready to pounce on Christ because of the failure of the disciples. And, and there's an incredible tense moment, this, this huge conflict that's going on. And now the father sort of steps out and takes center stage. And he confesses. To Jesus, teacher, rabbi, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. I mean, what condition would not bring any parent to their knees and bring their child to Jesus than a mute child? But this child is not simply mute because of a physical condition that brought about his inability not to hear or to speak, for that is his condition. He can't hear or speak. It's because his son is demon-possessed. His son is under satanic attack. His son has been possessed by a demonic spirit, and it is a strong demonic spirit, and he's desperate for someone to solve his problem, and he decides that Jesus must be the only one who can settle the issue and solve the problem and cure his son. He's desperate. You know, I think one of the main reasons why today we see a, a lack of spiritual warfare going on and the fathers assuming the role and responsibility that has been endowed to them by God of being the spiritual leaders is because we simply are not desperate for the spiritual condition of our children. We somehow believe that our kids are immune, that we have sheltered or protected them enough so that they're not going to be subject to demonic attack. We filter what they read. We we censor what they watch on television. We, we put them in Christian schools as if we think that's going to solve all of the problems. But let me tell you something, it does not. For Satan is after your children and my children and our grandchildren, and for some of us in the room, even our great-grandchildren. He wishes to steal, to kill, and to destroy them. And we as parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents are not desperate enough to fall on our face before God and to recognize that there is a Satan who seeks to not only just steal them from us, but to kill and to destroy them. This is objective. He is not our friend. He is not someone that we should trust or ignore or pretend as if his influence is not going to have impact on those that we love, for he will. We must get desperate enough desperate enough about the spiritual condition of our children and grandchildren and our families because unless we allow God to rise up within us and and create a sense of desperation, we are not going to turn to him and fall on our face to him in supplication for our kids. We're just not. I find this lack of desperation today from most parents. They say they're concerned, but there's not desperation. For desperation causes action. It moves us to do something about the condition of our kids and to assume the role of the leadership over our children. And most fathers are simply not that desperate today. Now we notice in this father there's a sense of desperation, but we notice also that there's a divine solution. 
in this desperation, he recognized and realized that Christ is the divine solution to his son's condition. And we see that he then continues on in verse 18. He says, as he steps out, and whatever, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. He's, he's describing the condition of his son. He's, he's telling Jesus what this demonic spirit is doing to his child. And this is not all that the demonic spirit is doing to his child. We're going to see in a minute it causes the child to, to fall to the ground in convulsions uncontrollably, incessantly. It doesn't stop. It goes on for a prolonged period of time. And he also foams at the mouth. And later we're going to learn it throws him in the water and into the fire, hoping to kill him. It, it, has a, it is a spirit of destruction hoping that the child will commit suicide and and end or annihilate its life. It's a serious condition. And he reveals that condition. He discloses the condition. But notice he also discloses what happened. So I I, I brought him to you, Jesus. I've told you that. But you weren't anywhere to be found. You were somewhere else. I was told you were up in the mountains with with Peter and and James and, 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 and John. And so you weren't there. So I turned to your disciples and to cast him out. But they were not able. Weren't able. They were not able. The word not able is a word that indicates that the disciples lacked the sufficiency that was required, the faith and the power to cast out this demonic spirit. It was so powerful that, that the disciples could not do it. Now, keep in mind, while Jesus was in the mountains, these nine disciples were endowed to go out and not only to proclaim the gospel of Christ, but more than likely they had been confronted by demons and had been able to cast them out. They had healed some people of diseases, and they were, they were kind of flying themselves on a high for having fulfilled a ministry. But now they've run across this demonic boy, and they have failed in all of their attempts. Brought him to you, Jesus, but you weren't here. And your disciples, man, they have blown it. And now they're in a defensive posture trying to argue with the scribes. and I'm the reason for the cause and the condition of my son. Notice then the complete dependence that Jesus says is necessary in order to receive a healing. He says in verse 19, and he answered them. He, Jesus, answered them. Christ gives an answer. Not just to the Father, not just to the disciples, but also to the scribes. Now, first he speaks, I think, to them, in which he says to the Father, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He's saying to the Father, you had enough faith to bring your son to me, but now your faith has weakened. How much more shall you see? How much more do you need to hear? How much more do you need to know until you finally recognize and realize that I am who I claim that I am and I have the power that I have? You're the father. You believed enough to bring the boy to me, but now your faith is weakened. What more is necessary to strengthen your faith? Jesus speaks, I think, also to the disciples and to them. The disciples who, for whatever reason, we're going to learn in a minute why, but they're unable to go through the motions and cast the demon out of the boy. And he's looking at his disciples and, hey, you guys, your faith is weakened. And that's the reason why you have failed. And I think many times we as the church, as the disciples of Christ, are not able to perform the functions that we have been sent into a lost world to fulfill because we too, like the disciples, have weakened faith. And we too lack faith. He's speaking to the scribes who actually had no faith at all. They had seen Christ do many miracles. They had watched him cast out demons before. They probably knew what the disciples had done. But now here's one instant, here's one case when, when, when all of their efforts have failed. And he said, you, how much more do you need to see? 
until you believe that I am who I claim that I am and I have the, the authority and the sovereignty over demons and disease because I am the Son of God. So that's what he says. But notice, he says, bring him to me. Interesting, he says, bring him to me. I thought about that for just a little bit. And I thought, it's more than just bring him to me. I think Jesus is saying here is, I am the solution. Bring him to me. Don't bring him to my disciples. Don't bring him to the scribes or the religious elite. Don't take him anywhere else. Bring him to me. And I think he's saying to them, as he's saying to us, there are times and moments of desperation where we have reached the end of our rope. We have exhausted all means of our own effort. We have seen every expert that could possibly be seen. We have taken him to others in the church who have faith in Christ, and all of our efforts have failed. Now it's time to do what? Bring him to Jesus. We have to bring them to Jesus. There's no psychologist, no psychiatrist, no physician, no church, no disciple, no one that can do what Jesus can do for the boy. And he's saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the solution. Bring him to me. And so out of desperation, he's looking for a divine solution because he knows that what he's dealing with is demonic. It is of, of spiritual nature. And he's looking for the Son of God, the divine one, who has authority over demons to cast the demon out of his boy. Are we looking in the wrong places? Are we trying to manipulate and control the environment ourselves? Relying on our own effort like the disciples, only to end up in failure and frustration, and then finally on our face fall before Christ and say, here, I should have done this all along. Well, there's a a beautiful ending to the story where we see this desperation leads him to seek out a divine solution because he knows what he's dealing with is demonic. And so we see this delivering power of the Savior. The delivering Savior comes to the rescue. And we see in the text at the end of verse 19, bring him to me. That's what he asks. That's what he commands. And notice in the next sentence in verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. That is huge. Don't, don't, Read that quickly over and just ignore that. They brought the boy to him. Remember, in the discussion, the debate, and all the anger and all that was going on, the father sort of began to to kind of back up a little bit, and he brought his son with him, and and they just kind of began to back up over here and kind of wander in the crowd. And then all of a sudden, Jesus asked for any, and and the father steps up, and now the father and Jesus are having one-on-one, and the boy's still back there. And Jesus said, bring the boy to me. And they went over, and they brought the boy, and they laid him at Christ's feet. I wish we had time to deal with this principle, but we don't. There's no power when we're disobedient. Rebellion and disobedience, when we're not yielded to the leadership and the spirit of Christ, when we have a stubborn, rebellious, resistant heart to God, we're going to be powerless fathers. We're going to be powerless parents. We'll have a powerless church if we continue to reject and resist. Because if you notice what James says, we've been dealing with James for the last couple of Sundays. He said, submit to God, resist the devil, and then he will flee. You can't resist until you submit. And they submitted to the commandment of Christ. That's the request. Bring him to me. They did. They did exactly what he said. Notice the revelation of Jesus now in the next sentence. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed in the boy, and he fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. The demonic spirit instantly, immediately knew that it was Jesus. There was no question who he was being confronted and who he was about to face. 
And he took sort of Custard's last stand, so to speak, and tried to muster all of his forces and using the same tactic of intimidation they did with the disciples because I'm convinced that, that the possibility here is, the suggestion is that when the disciples tried to cast him out, the boy just continued to convulse and nothing happened. And it made the situation worse. And so Satan said, and the demon said, well, it worked the first time, let's do it a second time. Even though I know this is Jesus, the divine one, the son of God, the one who has all authority over me, I'm going to make my last stand. You know, I had a dog once, its name was Susie when I was a kid. It slept on my bed. I would never do that today. I'm too much of a neat freak. But uh, Susie was a little bitty Pekingese, about this big, and a lot of hair. Anybody seen a Pekingese? It looks like somebody punched it in the nose, and the nose just kind of went like that. But anyway, a little bitty dog, and it absolutely thought that she, she thought she was a lioness. Seriously. And she would attack large dogs. And we had to watch her closely because she was, thought she was so fierce and so invincible that she would attack large dogs. And with one chunk, that dog could have annihilated that little dog. Really. We had to keep a close watch on her. I, I, I get the, the mental picture in my head of, of my little dog, Susie, and, and this large Labrador retriever. You know what I'm saying? Satan thought it was Susie and a lioness, but it's attacking a lab. Impossible. It's not going to win. And yet it's taking its last stand, trying to intimidate. And notice then, and Jesus asked the father, here the boy is, get the image, here the boy is convulsing all around, throwing fits. And Jesus then turns to the dad and he says, how long has the boy been, hap how long has it been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it, it, and it was as often as it cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Jesus is kind of acting like a, a doctor here. It's a, trying to make a medical diagnosis, not necessarily, but he's trying to make sure that he validates or solidifies the length of period that this has been going on with the boy. Why? So that those who are there, the scribes and the disciples and the father, so all three in that category will recognize and realize the authority and the power of Christ. I am the divine son of God, and I have authority over the demons. Now notice in the next sentence, but if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Christ is asking for a response from the father. And the response is a response of faith. He says, but if you can do anything, have mercy on us. I beg for your compassion. I, I plead for your mercy. Be, be gracious to us. At least care about the condition of my son and, and me as a father for the condition of my child. And, and help us. Please help us. If you can, help us. Wait a minute. If you can. He believed enough to bring his child to Jesus in the first place. But now he's beginning to doubt. There's a weakened faith. And notice Jesus said, if you can. Jesus sort of reiterates what the man that kind of throws it back in his face. What do you mean, if I can? Are you, you believe I can? All things are possible to those who believe in me as a sovereign Lord of lords and King of kings. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, notice the release. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, If you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Notice in the release there's compassion because, I don't know if you know it or not, but when there's something happening that, that looks horrific or looks tragic or terrible, it attracts a crowd. 
You ever been on 35? Anybody ever been on 35 lately since the, since the, the, the tornado went across uh, there and more? Anybody? What, what's the problem there? Anybody know on the highway? What happens? Everybody and their mama wants to see it. And there's a traffic jam for several miles going north and south. It's horrific. Why do people do that? They want to stop and look at tragic things. I mean, you do it when you're on the side of the highway. One of the, reason, one of the main reasons why there's a traffic jam, because there's a, an accident on the other side of the road, and everybody's slowing down to look at it. And it makes them want to say, you idiots, why, why are you slowing down? Why do you want to see guts and gore and horrific things? It's just something about it attracts the crowd. And this thing that was going on with the kid down there and the father, you know, Frantic because his son is again having those uncontrolled convulsions. A demonic force is overpowering his son and he's foaming at the mouth. And, and, and all this is going on. And he and Jesus are having this dialogue and the crowd begins to say, hey, let's check it out. Let's check it out. And Jesus said, hey, I'm going to put an end to this. I'm going to put an end to this. He cares about the condition of the kid. And he turns and he commands the spirit. It's an interesting command. He, it says in the text that he rebukes the spirit. Now, we know that according to Jesus, that most of the rebukes are for conviction and confession. Anytime Christ addresses someone in the New Testament with, with a rebuke, it's, it's to bring about a conviction of sin and a confession, confession that he's the Savior. But not here. It's not that kind of rebuke. Because you see, he's dealing with the demonic force, and demons are not going to admit their sin, and they're not going to confess that Jesus is the Savior. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. This rebuke is one of authority, of power, and he commands. And the voice, Jesus, is affirm. It, the command here is a military term of someone far superior over this little demon that's here. Who do you think you are? And he says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. What's the command? To leave and never return. Not only is he expelled and cast out, but he can never return. He set him free. But notice what happens. And after the crying out and the convulsing him terribly, the demon is, is still shaking, but all of a sudden, pow, it comes out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said he is dead. He was still. I mean, can you imagine seeing eye hands and hand, just everything, just dust flying up and everything, debris, and he's going all crazy and stuff coming out of that, and boom, he's still. And they conclude he's dead. Jesus knows better. And he reaches down, he took him by the hand, and he lifted him up, and he rose him to his feet. What, what is it that Jesus can't do? What is it that Jesus cannot do? Come on, what can he not do? What enemy is greater than him? When is his power insufficient? To those who believe and who trust in him. He released the boy. And he set him free. It kind of describes salvation to me. I don't know about you. I was lost. But then I was found. And I trusted Christ as my savior. And he relieved me of my burden of sin. And he placed his spirit in my heart. And he saved me. And now I have life. And freedom. I've been set free. Notice then there's a defensive strategy in which Jesus closes in this text. In verse 28, and when he had entered the house, after it was all over, the boy and the father walk on home. And we learn, according to Luke 9, that he releases the boy into the father's care because that's his role and responsibility as a father to be the spiritual leader of the son. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? 
Isn't it great that Jesus doesn't like to whip us in public? Isn't it great that Jesus doesn't like to bring, take us to the woodshed so the others can see? Come on. Isn't it, isn't it good that he does that? He does it in private here. He takes his disciples into the house before he rebukes them. And Jesus is having a, a little, little you know, time with just him and the disciples. And he, he kind of waits. And he knows the question that the disciples are pondering in their head, head and their heart. And as soon as they sit down in the house, probably for a celebration of some kind, one of the disciples can't handle it and said, why could we not do that? Explain it to me. I mean, for six days we've been casting out demons and proclaiming the gospel and seeing people converted. And now all of a sudden with this one boy, we tried and we failed. Why is that? Notice what Jesus said. And he said to them, as he says to us, this time it's only the disciples. Now remember, Jesus has already told them why. I said, Jesus has already told them why. Because we saw it earlier, he told them because of their weak faith. The disciples were too dense. You ever been like that? Just dense. Jesus already told them why. Lack of faith. They weren't spiritually prepared. But you see, they didn't think Jesus was talking to them because they're the disciples. I don't sit there and think like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. How many times have we been in church and said, you know what? That ain't for me. That's for somebody else in here. God ain't talking to me. I got everything right. I did everything right. Well, they didn't do everything right or the demon would have been cast out of the boy. Right? So sometimes I think he has to communicate to us a second time, sometimes a third time, sometimes a fourth time before we even go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to pay attention now. Jesus is looking him straight dead in the eye, and he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but what? But what? Prayer. They are spiritually inept. They are not spiritually prepared. The best manuscripts don't have the word fasting. It's simply prayer. Only by prayer, they are not spiritually prepared. They have not spiritually prepared themselves to confront the enemy. And I think one of the main reasons why many disciples in many churches today are inept, they're powerless, their faith is weakened, is because of a lack of prayer. We have ceased to be praying people. And the reason why prayer is so powerful is because it recognizes my dependence and it pushes aside my independence. It elevates God in my life and my recognition that he is sovereign in my life and it pushes me to depend upon him because it says I am facing something that I can't face alone and without you, if you don't do it with me and for me and in me and through me, it's not going to happen. Oh, but we, we're over here, we, like, we can handle this until we get in the jam that we can't handle this and then we come running to him. Well, you can't handle this or this without him. And here's the twist. What we need today, dads and granddads and great-granddads, is praying fathers. We need praying fathers. We have fathers today who, who provide financially, who provide food, who provide education. They provide clothing. They provide shelter. They provide a lot of things, security and all those, but they are not 
fulfilling their role and responsibility as spiritual leaders because they're not praying for their children or their grandchildren. But once we reach a sense of desperation and we recognize and realize that unless there's a divine Savior who, who, who intervenes in their lives because of the prayers that I offer on their behalf, they're doomed. I'm not just talking about a quick little prayer like you say at a, at a table, say thank you for the food, amen, dig in. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying a real prayer of desperation brought about by a burden that is so deep. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You have children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren that the enemy is having a field day in their lives. And you wish things would be different for them. And I'm convinced unless the fathers pray, it ain't going to happen. Because that's our role and responsibility. I know men, we're not made for relationship the way women are. But he's our father too, and we need to pray, and we need to lift our children up to the father in prayer on a daily basis. And we need to stop relying on our wives and, and the mothers of our children to do what is rightfully our role and our responsibility to do. And until we have praying men of God and praying fathers in this church, this church is powerless. It's powerless. Now, I'm not talking about some little prayer meeting that happens in a room while we're in here and they talk about the hangnail and the toenail of somebody's left foot. Now, he cares about those things. But I'm talking about real, fervent, spiritual praying. It prays for the lostness and the spiritual condition of our children and, and, is, and is so driven by, by a passion and a desperation that unless, God, you do it, it's not going to happen. And so that is our role and responsibility. So as we close... How do we engage the enemy? I want to give you five very quick things. How do I engage the enemy? It begins with a deep burden. I wonder, dads, do you have a burden for your kids or your grandkids? I'm talking about a burden that leads you to a sense of desperation over their condition. Now, they may not be drug addicts or, or alcoholics or, or, you know, in, into demon-possessed. But, but their condition is desperate, and their condition is serious. And unless you, you pray for your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grands the way you should, it, it's, it's needed. And we need to look to Christ as the only solution. I know some of you are saying, well, my grandkids would be, be different if it weren't for their parents. Okay? Well, you know, there's a Jesus... I remember my grandpa quit smoking because I wouldn't sit in his lap as a little bitty kid because he stunk. Kids can, kids can have an incredible influence on their grandparents and their parents. We need to trust Jesus to deliver our children because he and he alone is the Savior as we commit to the spiritual disciplines that are necessary to make that and to see that happen in their lives. Which one of these do you need to do today? Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. 
Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.